Today we are beginning a brand new series. Uh, we're going to do another book series coming up uh, in not too long from now. Uh, but today we're starting a series where we're going to spend a couple of months. Uh, our goal is to spend the next uh, close to two months uh, talking about spiritual disciplines. Now, my goal today is really uh, twofold. My goal really is to explain the importance of spiritual disciplines to you and then introduce to you a bit of a framework that I think will be helpful for you as we are walking through this teaching series on spiritual disciplines. Uh, now, if you could turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, we're going to get there in just a minute. So the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. If you uh, are looking through the Gospels, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. If you are in Acts, just turn left and go backwards a little bit um, and find the 15th chapter of John. We're going to get there in just a minute. Um, I, I want to kind of set some groundwork for us to get to John 15 as we talk about spiritual disciplines. And I also just want to say to you that um, my, my intention today is there's sometimes where we'll we'll take a scripture and especially like as we're going through Ephesians for example we're pulling out preaching from the 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 book and we're explaining what did the words mean what does the text mean how does it apply to our lives uh, today I'm trying to come at you like a professor all right so um, my my other job uh, alongside of being here at the school is uh, I teach at Life Pacific University or here at the church is I teach at a school I teach uh, things like spiritual disciplines and spiritual gifts and leadership classes at our, our Foursquare University called uh, Life Pacific. It's in San Dimas, and, and I love to do that. And, and so sometimes I go into my classroom at the school and I say, today I'm coming to you like a pastor. Well, today I'm coming to my church and I'm saying, I'm a professor today. So put on your student hat. If you're going to take notes, if you're not normally a note taker, this might be a good day for you to start. Um, all of you have the ability to take notes on your cell phone. Uh, if you don't have a cell phone and you want to take notes, man, grab a pen and just write on those blank pages at the back of your Bible. God will appreciate that you're writing something good uh, in the back of, uh, of the Bible, just as long as you don't start to think that what you wrote is the same as what he wrote. Deal? All right, so you can take notes uh, today. Uh, now, having said all of that, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we're, we're building to John 15, but in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we, uh, we're, remember, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. We find uh, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4 telling the people of Israel how to live if they want to experience the good life that God has promised them. Uh, for these people in particular, there was something called the promised land, which is a topic for another day. But there was this good life that he had promised, and, and he's telling them this is how you should live if you want to experience it. Deuteronomy 4.9, only be on guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the, teach, the things that your eyes have seen and so that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack here. We're just going to use this for this text for just a moment and move towards John 15. But apparently, experiencing the good life, which God promises, does not come naturally. Anybody in the room ever experienced that the good life that God promised you didn't just happen the second you prayed the prayer of salvation? Like anybody like me got saved and then went, God, why didn't you fix all my problems immediately? What's up with that? Right. Okay, so, so Deuteronomy, Moses is telling the people of Israel and God would be telling us, hey guys, 
be on guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things that your eyes have seen and so that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Then he goes so far as to say, it's your responsibility to teach them to the children and to the grandchildren. Now, the phrase be on guard, I told you I was going to be a teacher today, so let me break down what this means. The phrase be on guard in the word watch comes from the Hebrew word shamar. Say shamar. Shamar means to keep, to watch, or to preserve. To keep, to watch, or to preserve. Now, shamar was sometimes used for, uh, for gardening work, which is an interesting uh, connection to this word shamar. But shamar was used for gardeners who would, like, uh, they, they would, it would mean to hedge about like a garden, to, to watch or preserve. So a gardener had responsibility to preserve and keep watch the garden that they were caring for. So the purpose uh, was for creating space where life can flourish. So you create a, a garden, you hedge in a garden, you say, this is the protected space. My sister-in-law, Abby, who lives in Maryland, in her backyard, she has a garden, and there were these rabbits that kept coming in and eating all of the things she was growing in the garden uh, before they could get a chance to harvest it and eat it in the house. And so she had to actually go and get all of the wires and the posts and all of that and build a hedged-in place. She shamarred the garden, you could say. That's not the right way to say that in, in, in Hebrew, but yeah, I think you understand uh, what I mean. All of my Hebrew professors from back in the day would be so mad at me right now. But here's the point. God is telling people to structure their lives in such a way that, it would, that their lives would be empowered to remember God's word and to pass God's word on to other people, right? Down through future generations. In fact, because people have been doing that, that's why we all got here, right? So this kind of living obviously takes attentiveness. It takes work. Uh, a word that you'll hear me use a lot and that we'll use during this series is words like intentionality. So your spirituality requires intentionality, right? It doesn't just happen by accident. Now, generations later, after Moses said the thing he said to the people of Israel, Paul is writing a letter to the Christians in the city of Rome. And in Romans chapter 7, he says... He's talking about his own challenge with this shamar practice when it comes to guarding his spirituality. He's, he's making confession. He says, I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Anybody feel seen right now? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good, so now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me, for I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. Now, Paul just attacked this idea from all kinds of different angles. He kind of repeated himself a lot, but here's essentially what he's saying. He's making confession of a conflict he has within himself. He has the desire to do what he calls good, but he has the tendency to do the thing that he hates. Right? So almost as if in response to the command in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Paul says in, uh, in Romans chapter 7, specifically in verse 18, we see him say, I have the desire. The desire to do good is in me or with me, but there is no ability 
to do it. Have you ever wanted to do a thing, but you weren't strong enough? Me every single day. Like anytime something physical happens, like John Hansen was asking me about tools to bring to the church work day. And, uh, and, and I said, I don't even know what tools are. Like, you know? And he goes, <laughs> John's response was, that's okay. We need a cheerleader. And the thing is, John thought he was burning me, but he was just spitting facts. Guys, like, this is the reality about my life. There's just certain things I want to do, but it's not, like, I don't know how, I don't have the ability to do it. So I'm going to show up to the work day, and Chad is going to be like, Tim, just push a broom. Just, just take that box and put it over there. Like, yes, sir, I'm not in charge that day. So, but you can understand when you think about your spiritual life, this is, this is a really good breakdown of what it feels like to have these conflicted tendencies and desires. Now, there's a lot to be said, of course, in different sermons. And if I was coming at you like a preacher today, I would remind you Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so look, there's no condemnation. But we've got a problem right? God has challenged his people for generations to frame their lives with attentiveness or with intentionality, to be on guard, keep watch and preserve, to shamar, to do the thing that would lead to the good life. But left to our own devices, we are ruled by sinful desires. Don't say amen to that, but I know that you relate. So we're stuck with conflicting desires. And the lives that we end up living, even though we come to church and sing the songs and listen to the sermons, the lives we end up living don't feel or look like the good life we thought Jesus promised us. Something is missing. And this is where Jesus does come in. It, it does get good. It gets like, I'm tempted to do some preaching, but it gets like Jesus-y. It's good. Jesus comes in with an answer to our problem. Of course, we know the answer to the problem is Jesus died on the cross, rose on the third day, and like the blood that atones for our sin, and praise God for that. Romans 8.1, no condemnation for you. Hallelujah. But he comes in with more than just that. In fact, he comes in with an answer to our problem that is a metaphor. Now, as you listen, this is where we finally get to John 15. And as, as you listen, I want you to notice a few things. Number one, Jesus is aware of God's expectation and he's simultaneously aware of our struggle to meet it. Isn't he so good? And then another thing I want you to notice is just how many times you hear the word remain. So that if you're like me, you don't get distracted and not listen to the actual point, just so you can count how many times he says the word remain, it's seven. Okay, but note it, it's a lot, and not a lot of verses. Here's John 15 in the CSB. I am, this is Jesus talking, I am the true vine, the Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Do you, do you hear that? He's talking to Christians. You're already saved, you're already clean because of the word I spoke to you, but he, he's not done. He says, remain in me. 
and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now there's a whole universe of important teachings that we can draw out of this passage. But again, Jesus is speaking about the the good life. What does it look like for you to live attached to God, attached to, uh, to, to him as the source of our lives so we can experience the good life? Ultimately, Jesus is telling us the model for living a good life, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Just remain, remain in me, which is different then think the right things about me. It's different than have the right emotions when my name comes up in a conversation. It's even different than sit in a room and listen to somebody talk to you a couple of times a month. Now, you should think the right things about God. You should feel positive emotions when his name comes up in a conversation, and you should go to church. But that's not what he's talking about here. Remain in me. Now, think that he expects us to do something active. Jesus actually tells us to remain like a, like a vine remains attached to, to its source. Some translations actually use the word abide, but I prefer the word remain because it implies, in, in my thinking, when I hear the word remain, it implies a resistance against the forces that would pull us away from God. Remain. You're being pulled. No, remain, right? Abide is, to me, it's a passive term, and so I I think it's not as strong of a a translation as what I think Jesus is intending for us. Don't just abide, like, don't just be in the house, but resist the things that are calling you out of it. Remain. So, how do we then remain in Christ? Again, it is not enough to just think or feel the right things. While Ephesians says that we are saved alone by faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is, not, it is God's gift, not from works, so no one can boast. Like, you didn't earn your way into salvation. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, in verse 10, to say, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. How incredibly confusing. So you didn't get here by works, but do the works. That's, in fact, he got you here so you could do the works. So works didn't get you in, but once you're in work. Huh. So are works important? Yes. As long as you're already in. Right? Now, you go, well, God, why, would, why don't you care about our works before you're saved? Because you were dead. You can't work when you're dead. I made you alive. Now get to work. Well, do I stay alive because I do the work? No, you stay alive because I did the work. But because I did the work and you're alive, work. James puts it this way in James chapter 2. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I show you that my faith is alive by the work I do. How did I get alive? Jesus. 
Okay, so let's just make sure that that's clear. But the goal here is not to teach us that we are saved by works and effort. That's not the intention of talking about spiritual disciplines. Rather, it is to help us to learn that a life of faith actually has to look like something specific. Otherwise, our life of faith will end up looking like everything around us and ruled by the desires within us. This is just left to your own devices, you're crazy. Left to your own devices, you look nothing like Jesus. Left to your own devices, we're lazy, we're, we're, we're angry, we're gossipers, we're murderers, we're lustful. Like, left to, our, left to our own devices, we're just gross and terrible and mean. But Jesus. So live as if that means something. That's the invitation of spiritual disciplines. But live as if that means something in a, in a way that then produces more life in you. That's the invitation of spiritual disciplines. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, uh, Paul speaks to this, uh, this challenge of being, not being ruled by the desires within us. He, he begins to paint a little bit of a picture of what this looks like. He says, so then, this is Colossians 2, starting in verse 6, so then, just as you have received Christ as Lord, continue to walk in him. Do something with it, right? Being rooted and built up. Rooted in Christ and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Teaching is important. Doing something with what you are taught is equally important. And overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. So Paul warns us that there are things that pull on our lives. There are lies out there that sound good. They're, they're, we have to be careful to resist the lies. Otherwise, those things will take us captive and we will end up being ruled by the lies of the world. So do the work to stay connected to Jesus, who is truth. And Scripture tells us his spirit will lead us into all truth. Let's break this down just a little bit further. According to Paul, the work, what it looks like in our lives, looks like five things in the scripture I just read to you. In fact, can we leave, let's leave that text up on the screen. It looks like five things. Number one, he says, continue to walk in him. Being grounded in Christ requires continuous relationship with him. If you've only ever met Jesus once, you're not a Christian. Whew! I don't have to care if you uh, are mad at the preacher today. I'm not. I'm just a teacher today. So I just spit in facts. Okay. <laughs> so, number two, be rooted, right? Continue to walk in him. Be rooted. Th this image is, is that your belief is in Christ and it serves or roots your life to him. So that when storms come like a tree that has deep, strong roots, you stay rooted. Yes? Okay, good. Um, be built up. Now, it's not enough just that you are walking with Christ and rooted in Christ. I love that Paul is just, he doesn't apologize. He's mixed his metaphors so much here, right? How does a tree walk and be rooted and built up? Don't worry about it. We're talking about you. <laughs> so walk in him, be rooted in him, be built up in him or with him. 
See, Paul, Paul is actually like super good at telling us what it should look like if we grow up. He does that all over. Like, we're pretty sure that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Go read the book of Hebrews. It, it helps us a ton. Um, but in there, there's a place where he like really critiques the church. And he says, you guys should be eating solid meat by now. But I still have to feed you milk like you're little babies. Like, I really want the audiobook version of what Paul was saying, because I think that's the tone that he was, he was saying that, right? Like, I just, I think he was frustrated, right? You should be eating meat. You're like little babies. Drinking milk. Grow up. The expectation is that you are more like Jesus today than you were the day you met him. Yes? So, listen, being grounded in Christ or rooted in him does not mean be stagnant. There seems to be a, a, an element that, that kind of tricks us into thinking, if I can just say like one prayer, then I don't ever have to do anything else. No, remember, walk in him, rooted in him. Something that has roots is alive, growing, right? And build up. There's, there's growth that is expected. And then I love that Paul doesn't say, um, have someone else come and build you up. Like there's this be built up that's an expectation of you doing the work of, of building in partnership with God. It's, it's pretty good. If you study all of the like deep down, deep, deep dive into the text and what Paul's implying here, be built up. Okay, let's move on. Um, be a student. Uh, he says, be established in the faith just as you were taught. Most of you know, and if you've been around here for a while, you know, the word disciple means student. So we are, if we are Christians, we are disciples of Christ, which means we are students of Christ. We are his students, and he is our ultimate teacher. So again, being grounded requires a commitment to a lifelong journey of growth, grounded, rooted in him, and learning from him. Again, not stagnant. So this learning is meant to have a specific faith or a specific result, which is faith, right? Established in faith just as you were taught. So be a student of things that lead to more faith. Question, what you studying right now? Netflix? How's that going? Is it producing more faith? Yes, in something. Okay, and then finally, he says, overflow with gratitude. Now, apparently, you cannot, cannot actually be a disciple of Jesus without also overflowing with gratitude, right? This is why I love that Sharon told us twice this morning, hey, say thank you to God. I don't know if you caught what she was doing there. She said thank you to God, and we all went like this. And then she went, with your mouth, right? Uh, my, my mom raised me to be a polite little boy, and she would make a meal, and I would say, Mom, thank you for the meal. She told me, if someone does something nice to you, you say thank you, right? Could you imagine if my response to that, how snarky it would come off in, like, real life? If, if my mom said, hey, say thank you, and, and every time someone did something nice to me, I just went. <laughs> Fights would happen. Who do you, th clapping at me, rude. Okay, so you get it, 
Okay, so subtle, I know. Like, I'm not saying God's calling you rude. I don't think Sharon was calling you rude. But like, when we overflow with gratitude, you can clap, that's cool. You can clap, good, great. But like, say something, right? Try it right now. Say thank you to the Lord. It takes words. Overflow with gratitude it means it's got to come out of you, right? By the way, this is where our discipleship turns into evangelism, but that's a different sermon. We don't have time for that. Okay, so now we've already said a ton. Like I, I could just stop right here, and some of you probably wish that I would, but I'm not going to. Okay, so um, we have to come back to our original challenge. Having said all of that, remember the original challenge is this: for generations, God has been calling His people to live lives of righteousness and holiness. Set apart, this is what he's calling us, to live in such a way that the fruit of your life is the good life that God has promised. And we all know that that life does not come naturally. So this is why we're taking time to study spiritual disciplines. To learn to do the things that we would do if we were to live as if Jesus were living our life. This is why uh, I want to move towards the, the, the next portion of the time I have with you, defining some terms and giving you this introduction for a language for a framework that will help us to engage in spiritual disciplines in our actual lives. Because next week when Pastor Mark continues this series and talks about our first actual spiritual discipline, I want you to be ready with a framework to catch what we are trying to teach you. So uh, I'm really going to go into teacher mode here. Now, if we are only uh, if, if we're just going to like study spiritual disciplines from the rest of here on out, I'm going to give you one other term. But if we were only going to say this, and I want you to remember this idea. Let's define spiritual disciplines. Some of you have heard us talk like this before here at the church, but I'll put a definition of spiritual disciplines on the screen for you. We would say that spiritual disciplines are practices, meaning you have to do something. It's a practice that a disciple of Jesus can engage to intentionally allow the Holy Spirit to form their life more and more into the image of Christ over their lifetime. Now, I could break that whole definition down um, we chose the words of that definition really intentionally. Spiritual disciplines are practices. It's something that you do. Who is you doing the practice? A disciple of Jesus, a student, a person committed to the kind of life that Paul was talking about in Colossians. Uh, it's, a, it's the kind of, a, a spiritual discipline is the kind of practice a disciple of Jesus can engage. You have to do it. You have to lean into it. And you do it not by accident, intentionally, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, because you're not producing the kingdom in your life. The Holy Spirit is producing the kingdom in your life, right, to form your life more and more, meaning you don't just do one practice and then, oh, now I'm like Jesus. It's more and more into the image of Christ over your lifetime, meaning you're doing this for the rest of your life. Baby, you signed up for a class and there's no summer break. The final exam is you stand before God and he hopefully says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the goal, right? Now, okay, let's go through this quickly. We've done some of this before here at the church, but I want to show you a, a couple of images. It's helpful for me to visualize what spiritual disciplines are like. Now, there's one of my favorite bridges in the whole world that one day I'd like to go to and just stand on it because, uh, I mean, it's beautiful. It, this, is, this is in Seoul, Korea. It is the Olympic Bridge. They, they designed this bridge when they were doing the Olympics in Seoul, Korea, and it is an absolutely beautiful bridge. It's a great bridge. And lots of traffic goes over the top of it. Now let me show you the bottom of the bridge. It's not as pretty. 
It's, it's not beautiful. It's, it doesn't have that awesome fire at the top of it. It's kind of like the pillar of fire at the top of the just beautiful Oz with the lights. It's gold. It's shiny. It's just like it's ugly. That's kind of ugly. It's just ugly. Or it's beautiful in a different way. Because of how profoundly important the bottom of a bridge is to the top of the bridge. You see, if it's not for this picture, you don't get the other one. Or you might get the other one, but not for long. If it's not for the things that might go overlooked or the things that nobody else sees, because they're not looking at that, then all of the life of your spirituality that runs in public will be short-lived. And a crisis will come and your bridge will fall apart. Spiritual disciplines are the practices that are our part in partnership with the Holy Spirit strengthening our lives. You see, the Holy Spirit sustains us. God sustains us through storms. And he even silences storms in the name of Jesus on our behalf. Many times. But not every time. I mean, it, it would be disingenuous of us to just say, well, you became a Christian, no more storms ever. <laughs> That'd be spiritual malpractice on my part to tell you that. When if you just pray the right prayer, then good, no more storms for you. Uh, saying exactly the right words and, and believing that you can force God's hand to remove a storm or a sickness or a brokenness from your life, we have a word for that. It's witchcraft. Sorcery. Friends, we do not have permission to just say, in the name of Jesus, give me the beautiful bridge. Jesus' response to that is, I gave you the bridge. It'll look as pretty as you take care of what's underneath. Do the work. This is why we're studying spiritual disciplines. We have plenty of times where we talk about the work of God. We're in a season right now where God's saying, let's talk about the work of the church. So that what is over the top is beautiful and sustainable. What goes underneath is wildly important. So popular spiritual disciplines are things like fasting, prayer, scripture reading, generosity. We'll talk about some of those and more during this series. The goal of our spiritual disciplines or the goal of our, uh, of our discipleship or, or our practices is to do exactly this, to discipline our lives so that over time we find it increasingly more possible to put on Christ and live as if he were us live the way to, to do what would Jesus do? Remember those old bracelets? It's the spirit, It's not putting the bracelet on. It's the disciplines that strengthen your spirituality so that you can more easily do the thing Jesus would do if he were in your situation. So as we study spiritual disciplines, we're going to zoom in on specific practices. We're going to define them. We're going to root them in scripture. We're going to ask questions like, what would that look like in our normal life in 2023? And that's the rest of this series. Now, the next term that I want you to, to know is the term rule of life. Can you just say rule of life? Okay, now when we hear the word rule, often what we think of is like we get a little like flashback PTSD to all the rules that you had in classroom, and I came at you like a teacher today, and now I'm saying rules, and you're like, nope, not for me, I'm out, right? Rules bad, freedom good. <clears throat> okay, I get it. Now, let's clarify what we mean. The word rule is actually rooted in a Latin word regula, which means rhythm. Okay, now we're, we're a little bit better now. We're a little bit more Pentecostal. We're talking about rhythm. Okay, good. We can do rhythms in the Pentecostal church. 
Okay, so early church leaders actually linked the regula or the rule to, uh, to, to this idea. I brought a prop today. Um, have you ever seen one of these? Somebody tell me what this is. Is it a tennis racket? Nope, it's not a tennis racket. Good one. Um, it's a trellis, right? Yeah, it's a trellis. Uh, thank you, Kristen, for bringing me a trellis. I didn't have a trellis. I had a feeling Kristen would have a trellis, and sure enough, she had a trellis. Uh, so here's, here's what a trellis is. It's, that's what it is, but here's what it does. Um, the trellis is intentionally designed for things to grow up on it. You notice how it's got a framework? It's got, it's got uh, both vertical and horizontal beams. It's got some pillars and some slats, and, and, and life can grow up onto the trellis. So I want you to have this in front of you as I explain what a rule of life is, because again, early church leaders took this idea regula, which means rhythm, and we translate to a, a word rule, and, and, it, and they would liken it to the idea of a trellis, which is, again, it's essentially a fence that vines grow on. Because vines, if you know anything about, if there's any vintners in the room, you know that vines don't just grow on the ground. They actually need to grow up something, right? Okay, having said that, Think back again to the command in Deuteronomy 4. Like a gardener, be on your guard and diligently watch yourself. Keep watch, he says, right? Be on guard, preserve the way of God in your life and pass that on to the generation coming up underneath you. And then Jesus teaches us in John 15, remain in me and I in you just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. And so the church leaders took this idea from John 15 and, and from, from what God is calling us to do to live according to the good life and have our life grow up in him, and they come up with this idea, have your life like a vine grow up around a framework, around a trellis, or around a regula, or a rule of life. The image of a vine growing healthy fruit is a picture of the result of spiritual disciplines in your life. Like a vine, life that is healthy does not simply grow without a framework. Left to our own devices, we do not look like Jesus. A vine grows by remaining attached to its source and growing up around a trellis or around a framework. John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, writes about this idea. He writes about spiritual practices that grow out of a kind of practical framework that's called a rule of life, uh, which is uh, what we have been talking about today. Listen to an excerpt from his writing in The, Eliminate, the Ruthless Elimination of, a hurry, of Hurry. He says, what a trellis is to a vine a rule of life is to our abiding, or in our language, to remaining. It's a structure, in this case, a schedule and a set of practices or spiritual disciplines to set up abiding as the central pursuit of your life. 
He goes on to say it's a way to organize all of your life around the practice of the presence of God to work and rest and play and eat and drink and hang out with your friends and run errands and catch up on the news, all out of a place of deep, loving enjoyment of the Father's company. If a vine doesn't have a trellis, it will die. And if your life with Jesus doesn't have some kind of structural structure to facilitate health and growth, it will wither away. Following Jesus has to make it onto your schedule and into your practices, or it will simply never happen. Apprenticeship to Jesus, which is another phrase of being a disciple, will remain an idea, not a reality in your life. So the rule of life has become popular down throughout church history because of people who understood this principle for generations, that I can't just clinch my faith muscles and become like Jesus. I need a framework. I need a rule. I need something to help me. In fact, it became popular. Just a brief little history lesson. I told you I was coming at you like a teacher today. There was a guy named Benedict. We, we know him, not Benedict Arnold, Saint Benedict. Okay, so he was before Benedict Arnold. In fact, he lived in the 500s AD in Italy. He's popularly known as St. Benedict. Now, St. Benedict, or Benedict of Nursia, he, he saw that the Roman way of life was pulling Christians away from holy living. It's almost like he lived in Lancaster. So, so he went away into the desert, into the wilderness, to learn how to live a fully committed to God kind of life. And he came up with what eventually became known as the Regula Benedicti, or translated to English, the Rule of Benedict. Now, over time... People who were in the city heard about the way of living that Benedict had discovered, and they went out to where he was to learn from him and become his students or his disciples. And over time, a monastery was developed. And so these people began to live in the Benedictine monastery and according to the, the Benedictine way, and they were all committed to the rule of Benedict. So the Benedictine way of living or the, the rule of Benedict was was focused around things like communal and private prayer, sleep, amen, but like sleep is a spiritual discipline, interesting, spiritual reading and manual labor. So they actually had chores, they had bedtime, they had assigned scripture reading that they actually did. <gasps> they had prayer <laughs> that they did alone. And then they had prayer that they did in community. So Benedict was intentional to make sure that your spirituality touched every aspect of your physical life. In fact, in, in one of his writings, he, he had this phrase that, that became really popular, that in all things God may be glorified. This was the, this was the intention of the, the Benedictine rule and the rule of life, was that, that in all things, in every part of my life, God would be glorified. Every single aspect. And then over time, this became so popular that it simply just began to be referred to as the rule of life, which is a, a way of talking about a framework for intentional Christian living. 
Again, John Mark Comer, who I quoted earlier, he says that a rule of life is a schedule or a set of practices and relational rhythms that create space for us to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he would do if he were us. And more simply, Andy Crouch defines a rule of life as a set of practices to guard our hearts and guide our lives. It's pretty simple. It's a set framework of practices, spiritual disciplines, to guard our hearts and guide our lives. Now again, notice that this rule is not law. It's not a system of of law. It is a system of living. The difference between law and rule is that laws are inflexible where rules in this context are flexible. They are based on relationship and they're designed to form you in, uh, to form your entire being into the image of Christ rather than simply requiring behavioral modification, which is what a lot of us think when we hear of spiritual disciplines. Why do I fast? So you'll be hungry and realize how much you need God. No, actually we fast to strengthen our spirit man so that we can resist the devil. But you have to do a study on spiritual disciplines to, we should do that at church sometime. It'll be a good idea. Okay, final point, and then we're going to move to a conclusion. He said, as if it was a promise. Here's the reality. I want you to, I'm going to say this to you, then you're going to look at your neighbor, and you're going to tell him, because it's going to be true. You already have a rule of life. Tell your neighbor that. What? No, I don't. This is the first time I've ever heard of a rule of life. How could I possibly ever have a rule of life? Well, Ken Shigematsu in his book, God in My Everything, says every thoughtful person has a set of practices or habits, a rhythm he or she lives by, even if they have never put their rule into words. Shigematsu says every thoughtful person. I'd go so far as to say all y'all. Everybody. Every single person has habits that shape our lives. In fact, in 2016, there was a study by Duke University that found that at least 40% of what you do every day is considered a habit that you do not have to put thought into. Your life is framed by the habits that you have. I woke up this morning. My alarm went off at 4 a.m. I got up. I went, and then I put my glasses on, and then I walked to the kitchen. I put my AirPods on, and I listened to a daily reflection that I listened to in the mornings as I am making coffee. I put zero thought into that. My brain was not on yet. But I was listening to something, and I was making coffee. And I drank the coffee, and then my brain kind of started to turn on, And then I sat down and I spent some time in prayer and reflection and working on the final touches of this sermon. I did all of that right up until I sat down to do the work on the notes. I did all of that just by habit. I do that every day of the week. I wake up when the alarm goes off and I go and make the coffee. It's a habit. The point is this, whether you are, keyword, intentional or not, your life is ruled by your habits. And your habits are forming you into something. A vine can only grow on or up something. A wild vine will grow up a wall. A wise vintner will direct the growth of their vines by attaching it to a vine to a trellis so that it can grow, and then the the vintner will come and go, I don't want you growing over this way. Come back and wrap you over here, and you're going to grow back up this way. Because the framework produces the kind of growth that produces the kind of fruit that the vintner desires. 
In the same way, you are either wild or you are cultivated. You are either wild or you are disciplined. You either have malformed practices or you have Christ-forming practices. Malformed practices are those practices that form you into the image of the world, the flesh, and the devil, which for generations church leaders have referred to as the great enemy of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you have practices in your life that are malforming you. And I hope you also, and much more so, have Christ-forming practices, which are those practices that form you more and more into the image of Christ. You need the disciplines, and you need a framework. Now, kind of just an aside about the rule. Yours doesn't have to look like mine, right? I know people who fast three times a week. And that would be a discipline that they have on their rule of life. And I know some people who fast once a month. I know some people who fast once a year. And that is how that discipline attaches to their rule of life. The goal is to write your rule. I had a mentor, Mary-Kate Morse, who was the mentor for my doctorate program. She said, always write your rule of life in pencil and then revisit it at least once a year. Because you might have a practice that is revolutionary for you, and then you come back five years later, and you're still doing that practice, and it's become empty religion. So regularly update your rule of life so that it's fresh. What are the disciplines that are deeply meaningful for you that help you be rooted, walking, growing up in Christ as a student who is overflowing with thanksgiving and generosity? So again, the question should not be, do I have a rule of life? But rather we should ask, who or what rules my life? Does God rule my life? Or is my life ruled by the world, by my own flesh, or by the devil? I, I think rather than asking, do I have a rule of life? I should ask, what or whose image is my rule forming me into? You are being formed into the image of something. And, and this, this example will sting and be profoundly helpful for us to understand this for generations to come. We know that we are all being formed into the image of something because we lived through the last presidential election. Now, what a good time to bring that up again because we've got one. Turns out they do it every four years. It's coming up again. I ask you, friends, into whose image are you being formed? When you do things that are important like vote, who forms your decision? In 2020, I knew who formed the decisions of our church. I've never asked a single person who they voted for, but good night did people want to tell me. You know who, how I could tell who you were being formed by? I knew what news channel you were watching by what you would tell me about mask wearing. I knew who's discipling you by what you would tell me about booster shots and vaccinations. Good Lord, I had more conversations with people about the physical 
reality and mythology of COVID-19 and whether or not we actually had a president than I had conversations with people about whether or not Jesus was king and it was infuriating and heartbreaking and I think wounded the heart of the Lord when he thought about the American church. And I don't want to go through that again, friends, so we're talking about spiritual disciplines. <laughs> if nothing else, for your pastor's mental health. I think also for yours. You are being discipled. You have spiritual disciplines. They are forming you into the image of the person who told you that was the way you should live. Who told you you should live that way? If it wasn't Jesus, stop. The news is not ever good and it's never that important. Your opinion is probably wrong. Me too. We build our lives on Christ. He is our firm foundation. We're not talking about spiritual disciplines so that we can instruct you on all the ways that we tell you you must live. We're doing this because Jesus loves you so much that he cannot stand to watch you flounder anymore. We're tired of it. We, friends, we are tired from it, from floundering. So we invite you to join us in a season of discipline. And if you think what I just said is a season of correction, that's for another time, and we never do that from the pulpit. Okay? That's not this series. A season of discipline. Ruling your life according to the rhythms and the practices of Christ. The, the irony, by the way, of saying a phrase like ruling your life is that it is a function of submission. I rule my life. I apply it to Jesus' rules and rhythms, not to my own will. I submit to him, even if it means I turn off every other voice. And by the way, it should and it will. Yeah? Yeah. Whew, okay, we got through the hard thing. As we conclude, I want to put a few questions on the screen for you to reflect on. And I want to invite us to, we're going to pray. I want to invite us to think about where, where we are in the journey of spiritual disciplines. I want to invite you to think about what your rule of life looks like. Which, by the way, uh, we'll talk, we can talk some other time, and there's workbooks and resources and all kinds of stuff that can help you. If you get through the end of this series and you go, I, I need to frame out my rule of life, we have resources and we can help you frame out a rule of life. In fact, I'll even show you mine. And in, in my rule of life, I've got four major categories, and I've got at least two practical disciplines under each of those categories that help me to have a framed-out, growing, rooted life that is ruled by Jesus according to his rule. Amen? So we can help you with that, practically speaking. But here's a couple of questions for you to think about as we wrap up. What are the current Christ-forming practices in your life? I, I would challenge you to write them down. I mean, if you're taking notes today, write down a couple. What are the Christ-forming practices? I, I mentioned some practices earlier like prayer and fasting. What are the practices that you currently do that are Christ-forming in you? 
by the way, one of them for, for all of you people is already, like I, I'm, I'm church gathering, community. The church is a practice. I, I go, I come, I'm here. Yay, good, keep it up. And all the more as you see the day approaching, right? That's a practice. Uh, okay, I'm in teacher mode. What else? What am I missing? What's the spiritual discipline that you do in your life? Somebody call one out. Reading your Bible. Worship, yeah, communal and private, right? Yeah. I have friends who, raise your hand if you listen to worship music in the car. Yeah? <laughs> what up? Yeah. Okay, Spotify, great worship playlists. Have at it. Yeah, good. Okay, what else? Spiritual disciplines. Christ forming in your life. Forgiveness is a spiritual discipline. Who and it's, it's work sometimes. Yes. What else? Service, generosity. Okay, you guys, like, we're going to study some of these words that you're saying over the next several weeks. So come. If you, want, if, you, if you just heard a word and you go, how do I do that? Well, how is that a spiritual discipline? How does that apply to my life? This is what we are studying so we can form ourselves more and more into the image of Christ at the risk of making you feel uncomfortable. What are malforming practices that we engage? Not you, but like what are malforming practices your neighbor engages in? Instagram? Yeah? Did someone say McDonald's? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. What else? Resistance to his command. We might call this stubbornness or pride. Right? That's a profound statement. What else? Say again. Lying. Judgment. Unforgiveness. Say, say again. Too much Starbucks. Now you're making it personal. <laughs> Too much Starbucks. For multiple reasons, right? I mean, yeah, if you're indulging in things you don't need to be indulging in because it's unhealthy or you're wasting your money, right? Yeah, these are malformed practices. It's brilliant. Now, can you go to Starbucks and honor the Lord and love the Lord? And, and, and yeah, you probably can. Can you also go to Starbucks and have it be completely malforming and not look like Jesus? Yeah, right. Yeah, how do you know? You have a rule of life that helps you know what is and isn't in, uh, in a place in your life where it belongs. Right? See how profoundly helpful this is? It's, it's really practical. Okay, good. All right, good students. Good job. Pat on the back for you. Way to go. What spiritual disciplines do you want to add into your life? Just sit right where you're sitting silently. Just think about what are the disciplines I want to add into my life? Uh, as a pastor, I have people come up to me and ask me questions about fasting. How do I start to read the Bible? Where do I go? What's, what's the good book to begin in? How, how do I do generosity? How, how do I do that? People ask all kinds of questions, and there are all kinds of practices and disciplines that could help. And I, and I love it in moments like, like those conversations, because I, I get to be the guy who goes, well, I, I actually went to college a few times, and I, I'm now a doctor of the church in leadership and spiritual formation, so my prescription for you is this spiritual discipline or this practice, and I absolutely love those conversations. So, so as you're thinking about what are the disciplines or practices you've heard about that you would go... Oh, I, I, I want to learn about that. Sabbath. Oh, that's a hard one. 
That makes people upset. We're going to talk about Sabbath. What else? Reflection? Mmm. Can make, can make the talkers nervous. Yeah. Anything else? Meditation? Yeah. We, we need to redeem the word meditation. Yeah. I think it was a, that's our word. What does meditation mean? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Are we talking about meditation during this series? I think we are. Yeah, silence and solitude? Yeah. It's in there. Oh, my goodness. So I just invite you, friends, to be curious. Here's the invitation of a series that we're calling Rule Your Life. What are the things that I can add onto my life that if I did them would make me look more like Jesus? Understanding that we are disciplining our lives. This might take time. In fact, I guarantee you it will take you the rest of your life. But what are the practices you're curious about? What are the ones you... Your mama taught you when you were a kid and you just haven't engaged as an adult. What are the practices you've heard a sermon on years ago and you're just wondering? And I invite you to be curious. And if we get to the end of this series and we haven't covered something that you're curious about, come and talk to us. We've got books on books and resources and, and, and teachings and help that we can give you and conversations we would love to have. But here, but here, is, here is all of it in a nutshell. For generations, God has invited us to live the good life. It does not come naturally. So join us on a journey to build a church that looks more like him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice and the love that you poured out onto us so that we could be with you. We thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work in and through our lives so that we can be more like you. Jesus, would you help us to remain in you as we study, resisting the devil, rejecting the flesh, and living in the world but not of it. God, give us wisdom to rule our lives according to your ways. Give us passion for your kingdom and help us, God, to fall out of love with the ways of the world and into love with your kingdom and your ways. We submit our lives to you, God, and we submit our love to you, God. May it be said of our church that we look more like you over time as individuals and as a community and God may the way that we learn to live with you and like you be a model for other people so that they would see our good works and glorify our father in heaven so that they would see the framework of our lives and be intrigued and glorify our father in heaven Help us to walk with you, to be rooted in you, to grow up in you, to spill over the generosity, to be students of yours.
to frame our lives the way you would frame our lives, to live as if you were living our life. Help us to do these things in your name and for your glory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.